Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So somebody called a couple days ago and said, why aren't the Democrats investigating the Trump crime family? And I said, I think they are. It's just like it's getting no press at all because it's, you know, it's Congress and it's not flashy. And the Democrats haven't figured out how to do political theater the way that Newt Gingrich used to do. And uh, so we just don't know about it. Well, here it is. This is from the Financial Times, Mark Vandeville in New York. The headline, Democrats probe Kushner's billion-dollar rescue deal for family-owned skyscraper. This is the Financial Times. This is not some left-wing rag, right? This is, this is the leading, solid, you know, way ahead of the Wall Street Journal, the leading financial publication in the world, the Financial Times. And I will quote from this article briefly here, hopefully within the realm of fair use, Democrats in the U.S. Congress have launched an investigation into whether Jared Kushner's desire to secure a billion-dollar rescue for a skyscraper owned by his family played a role in Donald Trump's decision to support a Saudi-led blockade of Qatar. Now, I have been talking about this since it happened. Remember when the Saudis and the UAE cut off shipments of food and fuel into Qatar? And I was saying, they're doing this? with the open approval of the Trump administration, because one of our largest military bases in the world, right, the fifth or sixth fleet, whatever it is, the CENTCOM is in Qatar, right? The Central Command, the Middle Eastern Command is in Qatar. Our Navy is in Qatar. Why would we tolerate Qatar being cut off at the knees? It's inconceivable. And I said, this has something to do with Jared Kushner needing a billion dollars, because that same week, Jared Kushner had flown to the Middle East and met with the Saudi prince. And the word was he was begging for a billion dollars because the bill was coming due. He had overpaid for this building. When his dad got out of prison, he said, Jared, there's three things you need to do to rehabilitate your image and our family. You need to buy a fancy building. And Kushner bought 666 Fifth Avenue for 1.3, as I recall, billion dollars. And it was only worth about 900 million at the time. You know, he had this payment coming due. Number two, daddy said, marry a well-connected, high-profile, very wealthy woman. And so he married Ivanka Trump, and he said, number three, buy a newspaper in New York City. And he bought the New York Observer. And that's what Jared did to try to, you know, grift his way into high society, and it seems to have worked. Well, back to the Financial Times. The deal followed frenetic efforts by the Kushner family to raise enough money to meet a $1.2 billion mortgage payments on the tower. At the time, Kushner was meeting Middle Eastern leaders outside the traditional diplomatic channels. Senator Ron Wyden... And Representative Joaquin Castro wrote, quote, we remain troubled that Qatari funds ended up in a billion dollar rescue for a company directly tied to Jared Kushner. They added, quote, federal criminal conflicts of interest statutes for senior White House officials extend not only to matters affecting their own financial interests, but to that of their direct relatives, end quote. A Financial Times investigation published earlier this year found that the payment in excess of one billion dollars came from a vehicle that was controlled by Brookfield Property Partners, BPY, an investment trust that has sold $1.8 billion of preferred equity to the QIA Sovereign Wealth Fund, and the, QIA, the, the government of Qatar. This would give QIA significant influence and allow it to receive confidential information that other, other investors next never see. And then they talk about, at the time, Rex Tillerson was the Secretary of State. 
And at the time, Rex Tillerson, again from the article in the Financial Times, then Mr. Trump's Secretary of State, urged the Saudi government to drop the blockade. He was swiftly undercut by Mr. Trump, who tweeted approval of the Saudi action the same afternoon. But a year later, after, shortly after the Brookfield deal became public, this is where the Qataris, the Qataris bailed out Jared Kushner, the president reversed course, appearing to withdraw his support for the blockade. And then this is what Ron Wyden, our, our senator here from Oregon, wrote. He said, quote, the stunning reversal in U.S. policy towards Qatar raises serious questions about what role Jared Kushner and the financial interests of his family may have played in influencing U.S. foreign policy regarding the blockade. I mean, corruption much? But the Democrats are looking into this right now. There's a subcommittee of, in the House of Representatives that is investigating this. God bless them, right? We need more of that. Russ in Hickory Hills, Illinois. Hey, Russ, what's up? Thank you, Tom. From my, yeah, I had called because I like your opinion. I was watching Nicole Wallace. I don't know if you've seen her, but she brought on Chris Christie. You know, he's trying to ditch some stuff from Trump now because he wants to make a run in 2024. And Tom, I was right. floored by what she said. She sold him right off. You know, that stench of Trump will never get off of you. I don't care how many showers you take. You kissed his rear end. That stench is on there. You're no better than Marco Rubio and Cruz, he said. And I'll make sure that yeah. stench stays on you. I was like, whoa, I'm hearing more and more of this out of like Chris Hayes and uh, uh, mm. Ellie Velter, even Joe Scarborough, Tom. They have just about had it with these Republicans trying to run from them now. But, you know, yeah. she's not a bad girl, Nicole Wallace. I mean, she's pretty much. There's a guy who took a baseball bat to an 80 year old woman. Do we have to forget that from him? And now he's trying to act like the nice guy. Chris Christie took a baseball bat to an 80-year-old woman. Remember, remember, remember what the unions when he was the governor and he threatened the old teacher unions? Remember that? I didn't know yeah. that. No, I oh, didn't. Oh, he threatened the old, the old lady with a, like, you know, well, I run New, New Jersey. You unions are going to buckle under me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I know wow. about a baseball well, I, you know, He told that old lady off pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, the lesson for me in this, Russ, and 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 I, I suspect this is probably lost on a lot of people, and 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 I think it needs to be put out in the open and made explicit, is Nicole Wallace. When when I see Nicole Wallace and I see the transformation in her politics, I'm I think I'm seeing the same thing that my father went through. Um, my father was a Republican up until the day he died. But there was a there was a turning point for him. He died in 2006. And the turning point happened right around the Iraq war. And at that point, I think that my dad started question. Well, I know that my because I had the conversations with him started questioning what the Republican Party was really all about. I think that my dad and Nicole Wallace and, and a lot of decent people deep down inside decent people bought this sales pitch that the billionaire class put together after the Powell memo in 71, that Reagan fine-tuned, and that organizations like the Heritage Foundation and writers like George Will and David Frum, and I mean, you know, some really eloquent writers over a 40-year period sold to Republicans by saying, really, you know, no, the Republican Party is, you know, we want a stable America, we want a strong defense, we, you know, but not excessive. You know, uh, we, we want we want uh, gradual, thoughtful, appropriate change where we don't make mistakes that we have to repair over and over and over again. So let's move toward that more perfect union. But let's do it carefully. And that was their sales pitch. But what they really was what they really were trying to say is right now, the really, really rich people in America have it better than they've ever had because we have bought off a bunch of legislators and we've bought the legislation that gives us massive tax breaks and the corporations are doing better than ever before because they've been deregulated and yes, they're polluting the environment, but so what? But we've got, now that we've got this scam going called the Republican Party that is recycling money from the working class up to the very rich, that's poisoning the world, that is destroying American jobs and sending them over to China. We've got to sell this 
to people like my dad and Nicole Wallace so they will vote for us. And, and my dad and Nicole Wallace were not racists and they weren't gun freaks and they weren't anti-abortion freaks. But they did believe that sales pitch of fiscal conservatism, of being careful, of being thoughtful. Of, you know, the whole idea of, you know, you want to run your family carefully so that, you know, when you retire, you've got a little money left over and all that kind of thing. So they took that metaphor and transplanted it over to government, which is completely inappropriate. Governments do not run like families at all. Families don't print their own money, <laughs> among other things. And I think that what we've seen in the last couple of years with Nicole Wallace is her is the scales falling off her eyes. And I think to a large extent it's happened with Joe Scarborough too, where and and David Frum and and George Will and a lot of these guys where they're realizing that you know, a large chunk of what they bought into, thinking that it was like the noble part of the Republican Party, and all of them would have acknowledged, yes, within the Republican Party, and by the way, there's people in the Democratic Party like this too, there are still racists and there's still crazies, okay? But, but mostly it's a good, you know, it's a good movement. These people, the scales are falling off their eyes and they're realizing that, that the GOP has been running a 60-year con job since Nixon's silent majority and Southern strategy that went on steroids with Reagan's trickle-down economics and neoliberal policies and, and that has held power almost exclusively, largely since the 90s, through voter suppression and lying in political advertising, you know, to, uh, painting their opponents with, with just flat-out lies. And that that has become the Republican Party. And, and step by step, and, and, and Chris Christie, uh, you know, yes, I saw that clip. And my sense of it is that Chris Christie wants to keep pretending that the Republican Party is that myth that was sold to Nicole and she bought before she woke up and that was sold to my dad and that he bought until after the war in Iraq. And I don't think it can be resurrected. I don't think they're ever going to get those people back. What do you think, Russ? I think um, there's going to be a split in this party that you can never put this party back. And he's got one other person, Jennifer Rubin, too. She's like turned yeah. the party. But I was just stunned yeah. that she's probably going, my president ain't the worst. This guy's got to go down as the worst president. Of course, you know, he still sits at 40% approval rating. And uh, that's, a, that's a given. I mean, I was just stunned the way she just took him apart like that. Yeah, you know, in the Washington that, Post yesterday then, you're talking about. Yeah, you know, and then she threw in Marco Rubio. And Ted Cruz to say, I ain't forgetting you two blow lights. It's like yeah, they have turned on this whole party. Well, thank you yeah, for taking I, my you know, call. I, I think that there is a, a large segment of the Republican Party that is awakening, and they need an alternative. And uh, I'm, I'm convinced that the Lincoln Project guys are talking about creating a Lincoln Party for all these Republicans to move to. And you're going to start seeing, within the next two years, you're going to start seeing the Lincoln Party showing up on ballots. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Our book today is It Came From Something Awful, How a Toxic Troll Army Accidentally Memed Donald Trump Into Office by Dale Byrne. This is from the introduction. On a warm summer day some 13 years ago, I found myself in the frigid air of Baltimore's convention center attending Octacon, a gathering of otaku superfans of Japanese media, mainly anime and manga. I didn't particularly like anime. I felt I was a little too old for the event. I'd attended a few times when I was in high school in the late 90s, 
Back then, it had been held in a set of hotel conference rooms, darkened to play obscure animation taped off Japanese TV. But in recent years, the crowds had grown big enough to require the city's largest venue. And the event had evolved, too, into an elaborate festival where otherwise isolated suburban kids came to bond over their favorite TV shows. And he goes through a fairly lengthy description of the convention center and whatnot. And he says, for this reason, entering into the cool, safe bubble of Octacon, where adolescents attempted to commune with the comforting kids' fantasy on the other side of the screen, felt slightly unsettling to me, though I couldn't put my finger on why. And at a certain point, wandering the triangle-shaped halls lined with wooden ships trapped in bottles, handing out flyers for my webcomic to teens dressed as rubber monsters, things started to get weird. Not for me, then. I hardly knew what I was seeing then. But for all of us, now. Years later, I realized I had become an indifferent witness to a turning point in history, a vast secret hinge upon which world events would swing. What did I see? Well, more of the same. Kids in costumes. At the front of one room, there was a 15-year-old boy with a sharp chin, golden locks, and a baseball cap going through a PowerPoint presentation that was a mixture of web statistics and lewd jokes mocking various types of cartoon pornography. Excuse me. These included many fan-drawn images of the boy himself, depicted as a curvaceous pink cartoon cat girl wearing white panties. As the increasingly silly Photoshop drawings slid by, the raucous crowd shouted words of encouragement, gearing up for the late-night techno dance party that would follow. Despite all the adulation, the boy seemed slightly ill at ease. The cap was slung a little too low, as if to disguise his eyes, and he let his friends at the table do most of the talking. This was one of the first meetings of the now infamous online message board, 4chan.org. The boy in the cap was the site's founder, Christopher Moot Pohl. In October 2003, bored and in need of porno, he had programmed 4chan on a whim to trade pictures of anime girls with his friends, but soon discovered thousands and eventually millions of other people wanted to use it. It seems ridiculous to say the site was important, but even more ridiculous is as important as already documented in the history books. In Alt-America, David Neewert wrote that the Nazi-worshipping alt-right began with 4chan, where people were talking online about Japanese anime. Few of these books, including Neewert's, offer an explanation for how this could have possibly happened. How we got from anime otaku to the anime Nazis of 2016 and onward. How all of this resulted in internet weirdos marching with tiki torches and similar fantasy-themed costumes in Charlottesville in 2017. Of course, the kids in that room weren't Nazis. Far from it. The last thing they wanted to do was discuss politics. And at that moment, I certainly didn't feel as though I was present for some great turning point in history. In fact, it seemed like I was confronting yet another moment of anti-history, as the vast landscape of the American suburban nowhere land was imported into the convention center, a place that, in its expanse of smooth, clean carpeting, model ships, and big tumbling geometric shapes, felt a little like an infinite kid's rec room. The teens weren't trying to make a mark in the world. They were trying to escape from it by pantomiming discarded scraps of fiction. However, looking back, it all reads like some crazy premonition. As the microphone was passed from rubber dinosaur to trench coat mafia kid to see which to ask their curly-headed leader questions, the teens slash monsters kept debating and joking about things called memes and trolls. In the mid-2000s, these terms were meaningless to anyone outside the room. But later they broke out of that room and saturated every inch of the world. And stranger still, from 2016 onward, memes and trolls became central concepts that obsessed political commentators. Almost overnight, the terms invaded the domain of world leaders and redefined the contest between them. Now there are Russian trolls, Facebook trolls, and of course, the original 4chan trolls, all jiggling through the ether. Back then, I was surprised to find that I knew what these terms meant. Before I encountered 4chan at Octacon, the site constantly popped up in my webcomics referral logs, the data that shows where people came from when they visit your site. When 4chan began, it wasn't all that different from other online message boards. It was a place to post content and talk to people on the Internet. At the time, it imported a few innovations from Japanese sites, which accounted for some of its popularity. It was easy to post images. And following a Japanese custom, it didn't require the user to sign up for an account. Anyone could post under a default name 
which eventually became the name of all 4chan users, Anonymous. But this hardly explained why it ballooned so rapidly, why almost as soon as it appeared, people began gathering to celebrate it. The book, It Came From Something Awful by Dale Byrne. Michael in Cassopolis, Michigan. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Happy holidays. Thank you. Back at you. Please, please get some rest. I know you can't go on vacation, but just try to rest. You do a good job. Yeah. All right. And be safe, okay? Look, you too. I call about my optimism, okay? The thing about conservatives, it's not that they're not smart. They're myopic in their vision, and they have money. And because they don't use the truth, they can confuse people. I call to talk about my optimism based on this new administration, the president-elect coming in. Mm-hmm. And mind you, I'm a hard-charging, radical progressive. Yet, the president-elect and my vision for the country are more aligned than those labels show. But I want to say is truthfulness. Is something you just mentioned. They're not giving the truth. In 2010, in August, I was invited to a meeting of select people, about 30 of us, uh, that met with the chairman, then chairman of the uh, Democratic National Committee. That is, we called him Governor Tim Kaine, and mm-hmm. he was tasked with going around the country. He was tasked by the president to find out why enthusiasm was so low in 2010. So he asked our opinion. So we went into this meeting, and you know we gave it to him direct, and you know why enthusiasm was down in 2010, and we told him that. But the thing is, Tim Kaine said to us, we're there because we're generous with our time and our money, okay? And the president just wanted to know. And he spoke with the president every day. And it just had to ring a truth to it that this man spoke to the president and the president would know how we felt. I mean, he had our names. I mean, I really felt I had something tangible. I had a seat at right. the table, Tom. I had a seat yeah, at the table. Yeah, and this was during the Biden administration. Yeah, got it. And I mean, during the during Trump Ob- or the Obama administration, excuse me, Obama. Obama now, Obama. Senator, Senator Obama, two years prior to that, in August of 20, 2008, the president, or I mean Senator Obama, asked that we send emails thanking Joe Biden for accepting to be his running mate. So I sent a thank you note, and I thought, oh, this is a weird request. Now, 12 years later, I can see the genius of it. Joe Biden is politic. He's older. He was older than Obama. And... He's politically savvy, and people on our mm-hmm. side, like Jim Kane, like Barack Obama, like Joe Biden, they're soft-spoken. They're not bombastic with all these lies. It's just a quiet truth. Yesterday, President-elect says, you know, folks, the truth is our darkest days are ahead of us. Armed with the truth, we'll know what to do, and we're not getting right. that right now. But when we're armed with the truth, Okay, we'll be, and I'm just saying that American people, when you hear the truth, you'll know it. It's like, I think her name's Pam. She called in the other day. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got relatives From in Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. I live there. You go, to, you go to food banks, you get extra food. If you offer to people, they will take it. That was the real mm-hmm. truth for me. And these women, they've been registering voters, feeding people in their neighborhoods. This is nothing new in my community. Okay, and what she was saying just had the, the ring of truth. So I think, like I say, we have a big tent. Progressives, liberals, Democrats, it's a big tent. And I have to work under the umbrella of what people like Stacey Abrams have done, the chairman of the county party here, what the state Democrats here in Michigan want to do. I work within that organization to move the ball forward. But let me say this. Michigan delivered for you, didn't we? In the election and oh, yeah. with this vaccine, right? 
They make it right here in Kalamazoo. So anyway, like I'm saying, just I want people just to be optimistic if they can and know that we progressives, when we speak, yeah, we're firm. Because, see, we're not farmers plant something and wait for it to grow. We're on the hunt. We look to deal with contingencies as they arise. That's what hunters do, and that's what progressives are. And sometimes when we speak, I know our language is kind of harsh, but we have to fight back. Like, they'll throw up buzzwords, radical, extremist, abortion. Well, you, you, you hone down something like a man and his wife being counseled by their doctor, how the baby won't live or the life or the mother will be at risk. I've been there. You can't encapsulate that in one word. Okay? There's... A lot mm. to it. In that counseling session with my wife, with the doctor, the word abortion never came up. Talked about the life of my wife. And many thousands of us have been there, and I'm just tired of them simplifying it down to pro-life, pro-choice. No, it's we need to fight back, and we've got a progressive language. When they throw these things up, we can answer because we're hunters. You hear me? <laughs> and we're on the hunt. I get it. And we we can it. chew these conservatives up by just, like I say, Obama wanted to know what's the problem. He couldn't get the answers from his inner circle. He, you know, came to people who dedicated time and money. And as far as my generosity, ask Free Speech TV, ask Bernie, ask Hillary, ask TomHartman.com, you know. I contribute wherever I can, when I can. And... That's what we're going to have to do. Like Pam in Chicago, we're going to have to give. We're going to have to get out here. When this administration starts, we're going to have to work with our county Democratic parties, and we can move the ball forward on this. So I I think up until now, mostly what we've been doing is kind of a holding motion. We've been trying to prevent this, this, you know, being swamped by this wave of fascism and hatred and misogyny and racism that that has been flowing out of the White House and out of the Republican Party now for four years and arguably for for more than 40 years, you know, going back to Reagan. In fact, you could take it back to Nixon. One other thing. And now you we, can't destroy now we're the U.S. Have an opportunity to, get to move forward. forward. Yeah, that's right. There you go. And look, Michael, we got we've got to move forward. Michael, thank you for the thank you for the call. We've got to move forward. That's where we're going. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Frank in Keene, New Hampshire. Hey, Frank. Been a long time since I was in Keene. What's up? Hey, it's doing nice up here. Listen, um, I only have a simple question. Concerning uh, Trump's increasingly unhinged and uh, undemocratic attempts to to distort the election, overturn it, what can the average person do uh, to, to, I mean, you know, yeah, we can call our Congress people and our senators, but (laughs) New Hampshire is unfortunately all Democrat. It doesn't do much good to call the Democratic senators the representatives. So what... And, and, of course, you can't call the representatives from the other states because you can only call them if you're in their district. So um, what can I do? Well, you know, one of the things that Bernie always used to suggest was, although this doesn't work with COVID, he'd say, you know, rent the local town hall and then, you know, invite everybody and then invite the member of Congress to come to face their uh-huh. voters. You do it what you can on social media. I see that you're watching us on Facebook Live right now promote your point of view on that social media platform, even though it means you're making Mark Zuckerberg richer. And to the extent that you can support what's going on down in Georgia and things like that, go for that. But I don't know beyond that. Frank, thank you for the call. Steve in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing? I'm hopefully bringing you a little bit of holiday cheer today uh, with some, some giggles here. My idea was that whoever the AG is that buying the points, say, let's say Sally Yates, is basically probably going to manage about 50 different special counsels assigned to certain, you know, certain uh, uh, corrupt 
issues that uh, the, the administration has been a part of this last four years. But would it not be fun if some way Chris Christie were part of a team that investigated Jared Kushner and <laughs> all of his dirty deeds, everything that you mentioned, would that not be fun to see him chasing Jared Kushner, you know, for well, the next to, to year or two? Yeah, to the point that Nicole Wallace made on MSNBC, I didn't see it live, but I, you know, the clips all over the internet, where basically she said, you know, what are you going to do to get the stink of Trump off you? Good luck, buddy. Having Chris Christie become part of a part of a program to investigate Jared Kushner might do it. I mean, you know, he wants to be president in 2024. I don't think he's got a chance, but, you know, might do it. Yeah, I, it's an idea, Steve. I was thinking because because he prosecuted his father, right? He sent his father to jail. Yeah. Wouldn't that be interesting to see him prosecuting the son as well? Yeah, I'm with you. Steve, thank you. That's a good one. So for our Tom Harbin Insider video that's available over at TomHarbin.com, I'm talking about Donald Trump just completely giving in to Erdogan of Turkey, the president of Turkey, the dictator of Turkey now, and this theory that Jared Kushner okayed the killing, at least the capture, perhaps the killing of Jamal Khashoggi to Mohammed bin Salman, and that Erdogan has the tape of it, and that when he called up Donald Trump and said, I want you to pull out of Syria and give me those Kurds so I can kill them and take that land, that he did it because Erdogan threatened him. And then Erdogan comes to the United States a week or two later and gets a whole state dinner thing. Check it all out. It's over at TomHartman.com. I think you'll find it fascinating. Hi, Tom Hartman here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, This is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. End quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. Kirk in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kirk, what's up? How are you? Uh, Tom, uh, my point is very straightforward, and that is that... uh, doesn't if, if Trump, in light of the tax returns and him not paying much in tax returns over the course of the last decade or so, he's also needed more police protection. So, in essence, if he's not paying taxes, hasn't he essentially defunded the police? Uh, isn't he essentially defunding the military? Uh, his trips that uh, cost uh, you know millions of dollars to go to Mar-a-Lago not funded by any of his tax dollars. So it was really just a point of showing the hypocrisy. So if there's uh, a lot of Trump supporters who are saying, yeah, it's legal. Uh, yeah, that's fine. But if you're a law and order candidate, you better pay your tax. So that was my point. Right. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, point made, Kirk, and, and, and a good one. Thank you. And, and by the way, let me add to that, the millions of dollars that the Trump campaign has yet to pay to cities all over America for police protection when Donald Trump comes to town for his campaign rallies. David in San Francisco. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Yeah, all right, Tom. Um, you know, just before the big Tulsa rally, uh, when uh, Trump was out there doing uh, other rallies without masks and it, you know, the epidemic was rapidly spreading, I was lucky enough to call a, a legal talk show uh, down there in Tulsa, and I got the uh, one of the city uh, uh, supervisors and asked them, as I understand it, the Tulsa rally was held in a public building. It's their public arena. I think they've privatized it. And I was able to ask, you know, if, uh, if there was a performance bond, uh, that if, uh, if Trump held that rally without face masks, would he waive the uh, performance bond? And the, the supervisor agreed with the principle of it, and he wasn't sure if, if they had actually done it. 
Now, if hmm. the news has come out that uh, that Trump is really more bankrupt than uh, than it's it would seem, and if it comes out that Brad Parscale and and you know the Death Star operation pretty well bankrupted the uh, the campaign. I'm just wondering whether each of the venues that he's uh, attempting to, uh, you know, to hold rallies in, if they uh, demand a performance bond up front before they even allow him in the building. I don't know if you've... My understanding, David, and, and this is based on what happened in El Paso, and there was four or five other cities that were listed in that, in the news story that I was uh, sharing with people, and this was almost a year ago. Um, but uh, what this story said was that, uh, and this wasn't about performance bonds and venues, but it's, it's related. It was about the cost of security. Cities, you know, when a vi- big event oh, comes sure, to town, yeah. you know, and the, the city has to hire extra police or pay a whole bunch of overtime, they charge for that. And, sure. and the Trump campaign or Donald Trump or somebody owes you know, El Paso, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and a whole bunch of other cities, hundreds of thousands of dollars, money that's supposed to go to the police departments. And Trump has not paid any of that. According to this article, now, again, this was a year ago, that, or in the, in the last year that this article came out, um, that the, the Trump hasn't paid any of them ever. And you've got cities all over America that are just like, whoa. And, you know, whether that's still going on or not, I'm not sure. And I'm guessing those are the kind of stories that are going to come out after, you know, after the, the dust settles. But well, uh, with just, regard to the performance. My, yeah, it just crosses my mind that if he is far more bankrupt and he's. Oh, if, I don't think he's putting up bonds. I agree, and and but the uh, there's a video uh, just before the doors opened in Tulsa. Uh, there's a mm. video showing the the Trump campaign staff removing the social distancing stickers. Part of the That's the correct. requirements of Tulsa were that they had to social distance. Well, they were pulling those stickers off the seats before the doors opened, and in fact, there right, were which had been put on by the city. But the flip side of that, David, is that the Trump campaign also had everybody who showed up sign a waiver of liability. And I'm guessing that they would argue that that eliminates liability both to Trump and to the city or county. I I haven't read the the limitation of liability, but I'm guessing it's absolute. No, it isn't. It clearly isn't absolute. And in fact, uh, because they were pulling the social distancing stickers in violation of the terms of the contract, that would invalidate any any waivers like that. If that's in the contract. Beg pardon? If that's in the contract. My guess is the contract's an old boilerplate contract that predates COVID. No, no, this was because COVID was starting to spike. And in fact, I've got local newspaper articles from around Tulsa a week and a half after it showing an 800% spike in COVID after the rally. 800%. Right. So, right. you know, this thing is, it, he has caused endless death and, and uh, harm by holding these uh, rallies without uh, social distancing and, and right. face He's continuing and to do it because he wants to get people into his hotels, in my opinion. Well, I, I'm just wondering, you know, the performance bonds, the refusal for him to uh, to live up to various uh, safety standards, you know, they could, if he's bankrupt already, the demand to put up cash up front or not have the rally uh, uh, really comes to mind. That it, you, I, You're old enough to remember the Who did a famous concert up in Ohio, and, and they only opened a certain amount of doors in the auditorium, and a couple of people died in a stampede and and so the who were basically denied venues in america uh you know because of that stampede and a lot of the rock concerts you know this is just kind of standard for rock concerts back in the 70s and whatnot so i'm you know there there can't be a, you know a guy who can just just because he says he's the president, that he can go out there and, and uh, get people killed and, uh, you know, pretend as if... But he's doing it, David. Well, that gets into whether each local venue, you know, all politics is local. Uh, and if he gets yeah. the local, uh, that becomes a local murder or a local uh, want, uh, reckless endangerment. 
There's there's going to be a reckoning. I, you know, there's no doubt in my mind. David, thank you for the call. Uh, with regard to the performance bond, I, I just don't know. I mean, this is sort of like a rent deposit in case you damage the house, you know, or the apartment. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office by Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Witz. And this is from the introduction, page five. They've described how all the former presidents, with the exception of Herbert Walker Bush, who was ill, were there for Trump's inauguration, as well as Secretary Clinton and her husband, Bill Clinton. And then he continues, the clock mounted down to the key moment shortly before noon when Donald Trump stood before Chief Justice John Roberts. Trump's wife, Melania, held two Bibles on which he placed his left hand. One was from Trump's childhood. The other was the Bible that Abraham Lincoln used to take his oath of office in 1861. And then Trump raised his right hand and, repeating after Roberts, swore the presidential oath of office. A momentary silence hung in the air. No lightning bolt struck. Ground did not open. The passage of power in the United States had taken place as quietly as ever. Yet in that moment, an earthquake of sorts did occur, because although the United States may have had more tragically misguided executives at its helm, never before had it had as president a man more obviously misplaced in the office. The mismatch reverberated across the country with the very words of the oath itself. While for millions of Trump supporters, the moment was one of triumph, For a great many others, a sense of dread pervaded the air that morning. This dread had little to do with politics or policy programs. It was not the normal apprehension one might have at the swearing-in of a politician one opposes. Even many people who had cast their ballots for Trump shared a collective recognition that the man swearing this oath was simply not the sort of man who was supposed to be president of the United States. That mismatch and the challenge it poses to the office Trump assumed that day are the subjects of this book. This mismatch is fundamentally a question of character. At its core, to a far greater degree than Americans commonly imagine, the office of the presidency depends on a measure of civic virtue. We don't mean civic virtue in the loftier, nostalgic sense of expecting our elected leaders to be scholars, statesmen, who can theorize a system of government as easily as they can lead one. Nor do we mean virtue in the sense of personal righteousness and purity. Americans have long since given up the expectation that our country's leaders will be on a par with its founders, even as the founders' own luster has tarnished over time. The presidency has had its share of rogues and villains and incompetence. That said, a certain common understanding of the presidency has prevailed over more than two centuries. And this understanding, call it the traditional presidency, carries with it certain expectations. It does not expect presidents to be paragons of virtue, but it does expect them to espouse shared values and to at least pose as role models. It expects presidents to speak of service and putting others before self. It expects presidents to, at a minimum, pay lip service to following the law and embracing an ethos of civic duty. And it pervasively depends on presidents thinking that they enforce and comply with rules in good faith. By contrast, it was resoundingly clear on January 20th, 2017, that Donald Trump's life and candidacy were an ongoing rejection of civic virtue, even if we define the term loosely. From the earliest days of his campaign, he declared war on the traditional presidency's expectations of behavior. He was flagrant in his personal immorality, 
boasting of marital infidelity and belittling political opponents with lewd insults. He had constructed his entire professional identity around gold-plated excess and luxury and the branding of self. As a candidate, he remained unabashed in his greed and personal ambition. Even his namesake charitable foundation was revealed to be merely a shell for self-dealing. He bragged that finding ways to avoid paying taxes made him smart. The overriding message of Trump's life and of his campaign was that kindness is weakness, manners are for wimps, and the public interest is for suckers. He never spoke of the presidential office other than as an extension of himself. In America in 2016, that turned out to be a winning message. The reasons why have been treated in depth elsewhere. It was a function of political polarization domestically, of myriad forces driving the appeal of authoritarian populists globally, and of the dramatic loss of confidence in political elites, and of a media ecosystem in which voters can increasingly choose their own realities. It was a function, no doubt, of the resurgence of race as a salient political identity for many white voters, and critically for present purposes, It was a function of political parties' loss of control over their own nominating processes. We'll leave to others the question of how to assess Trump's appeal and the social conditions that allow him to flourish. The relevant fact for now is that the appeal was broad enough for Trump to win 306 electoral votes and thus acquire the privilege of taking the oath of office that day. And so a man who quite proudly rejected personal and public virtue now occupied an office designed by people who valued nothing higher. George Washington had said that, quote, virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. John Adams had insisted the public virtue, quote, the only foundation of republics could not exist in a nation without private virtue. Alexander Hamilton had written that virtue and honor were the foundation of confidence that underpinned the institution of delegated power. The contemporary Anglo-Irish philosopher Edmund Burke had famously declared that, quote, society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. Unmaking the Presidency by Hennessy and Witness. Mark in Sauk City, Wisconsin. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey there. You know, it's interesting the, the, the new justice ignores the fact that, as Hamilton points out in, in 81 in the Federalist Papers, there's not a syllable that actually allows the Supreme Court to, to decide the constitutionality of laws. That was a power seized upon by the court itself, you know, to do that, you know, that... Uh, right, in 1803. Madison, Madison versus Marbury. Additionally, yep. in 44, Madison points out that they didn't tr- attempt to, you know, as far as, you know, that uh, the laws passed to promote the general welfare, they didn't uh, attempt to enumerate all the possible contingencies, you know, that they might uh, be called upon to, you know, have laws to actually, you know, you know, for the people. I mean, the, that um, they didn't know then what you know the, what we know now and what can t- what what might might arise. And as far as you know, her the deniers of the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendment. You know that uh, let's face it, the the, southern, the the states that were in rebellion against the Union were given a, a pretty good deal. That um, you know, in the past, you know, in historical past, you know, rebellions were met with you know decimations of the of those that rebelled against against the uh the state itself i mean that there wasn't mass executions of you know of of rebel leaders um in fact the closest we got to that mark the, the closest we got to that was when the federal government seized robert e lee's plantation at arlington and turned it into a cemetery for war dead that's arlington cemetery right now that's robert e lee's old plantation and I'm thinking that, you know, once Trump is out of office, we should seize the Trump properties in the United States. I think that there's three, maybe. That, well, actually, there's a couple in New York City as well as apartment buildings. But the, the ones that have some land on them, uh, you know, Mar-a-Lago and Doral and, and maybe his Vegas property, and turn them into cemeteries for people who died of COVID. Excellent idea. I mean, it, it just is sad that we've got people that that have been brought up on this idea that you know the the nobility of the southern cause i think is what it is i mean you see a lot of the old yeah. westerns you know that they're fighting for liberty and they're fighting for white liberty they weren't fighting for the liberty of the people they were held, held in chattel slavery i mean and it's interesting that, that or the people whose land they were stealing 
and that Trump wants to get rid of education about slavery and, and schools. I mean, that it just, uh, you know, what next to, you know, to, to, from him to, you know, ignore the history of World War II and, you know, the atrocities that the Nazis committed, um, that... It's it's just shocking. Mark, it's it's the old saying. My recollection is it was Marcus Aurelius who said it, but I'm probably wrong, um, that he who controls history controls the future. Yeah, and that's what they want to do. They want to rewrite (coughs) history. Well, there's six million people that died, you know, in in the Nazi camps that... um, most of them Jews, but you know, a great many people, a great many of them were were liberals and people that social dissenters, and uh, that um, the Nazis wanted to wipe out. And that uh, that's who that's who they went after first. You know, first they went yeah. after the trade unionists. They they went after those yeah. pesky unions that were raising objections to essentially to fascism. Yeah, Mark, I, I, I'm with you, and, and it's it's distressing, and we need to fight like hell to to hang on to this republic. Um, because it is hanging by a thread right now. Mark, thank you. Joseph in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, Joseph, what's up? Good afternoon, uh, Tom. Thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, I've, been, I've been in politics all my life since I was little, maybe because my grandfather was the president of my country. And then my great-grandfather was the president, and my cousin was the president. We've been on the Republican Party all our lives. And I just want to, say, I want to tell you something. Donald Trump is not Republican. The values okay. that, we, that I grew up with of honesty and not lies and respect the poor and respect women and all this stuff, I don't see them. I don't know how Trump followers will follow that. Or yeah, my that my dad was a Republican until the day he died in 2006. And and, uh, you know, I, I completely agree with you, Joseph. He would not recognize the Republican Party today. Oh, no, 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 no. Honesty and honor in my country, honor is a great thing. You know, if you say if your word is, 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 is a signed contract, and then yeah. I cannot see the Republican Party nowadays. And then when people come and say, oh, the Republicans, and I go like, hey, wait a minute, that's a cult. It's got the Trump call. Oh, yeah. But my point, my point, everybody knows that. But my point is that we are in Utah. There is three lawsuits against Donald Trump in Utah, and nobody mentions that. Are these from the state, or are they by indiv- individual parties? They are by the Navajo Nation, by the Hopi Nation, and by the, uh, ret- the outdoor retailers called uh, Paragonia. Oh, fascinating. Joseph, I'm going to have to look into this. I'm sorry we're out of time, but um, if you could tweet me any information on that, I'd love to see it. Dave in uh, Las Las Vegas. Hey, Dave, what's up? Uh, Mr. Hartman, thanks again. If Donald Trump actually declares Marxist insurrection, how would the military respond to that? And uh, what what is your feeling about that? Well, to the best of my knowledge, there's no law against being a Marxist. Whereas, uh, you know, I'm guessing the number of Marxists in this country is very, you know, real Marxists is very, very small. And they're not interested in launching an insurrection. They're interested in getting together for study groups. Uh, You know, I mean, this is just rhetoric right out of Nixon's 1968 campaign. That's that's what's going on. You've got Roger Stone advising Donald Trump and Donald Trump, you know, running the old 1968 Republican playbook. And I just don't think it's going to work anymore. I, I just, I really don't. Tim in Chenley Park, Illinois. Hey, Tim, what's up? I have read your book from cover to cover on the, the hidden history of the Second Amendment and guns. Mm-hmm. And I have then went through the whole book and then highlighted all sorts of parts in it from, from the first, probably 10, I think 10 or 12, the first 10 or 12 chapters. Basically, I would have to say that, that it, it is fomenting hatred to anybody who's white. I don't know how you can get away with that. I mean, how you can get around well, thinking that you read your book and it's going to be, man, you better hate everybody who's white and everybody who's European. No, that's, that's, yet, Tim, that is very definitely European. not the message. That is very definitely not the message of the book. It's not even in the intended message of the book. But the fact of the matter is that white people committed the largest in, in North America, committed the largest genocide in the history of the human race against Native people, against Native Americans, and then seized Africans and brought them here over a period of 300 years on a regular basis to be slaves. 
And, you know, if we can't acknowledge that, if we white people can't acknowledge that, well, then, then we've got a problem. And, uh, Tim, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you can't see it, you know, clearly. Tyrone in Chicago. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Tom, okay, Good. now, I want to tell you something. I don't mm-hmm. understand um, Planned Parenthood. What is that all about? Because they keep saying Obama gave them money to give abortions. Let's say any chiefs to that. That was the right thing no. always well, no, not not in a way that was any different than anything before. Uh, Planned Parenthood segregates their abortion services, which is less than 1% of what they do, from the regular clinics where they offer gynecological help and, and birth control pills and, and uh, you know family planning, counseling, and all that kind of stuff. And the federal government will reimburse states and, and, and whatnot for people using Planned Parenthood's birth control clinics, but does not reimburse them for their abortion clinics. And that's why they segregate the two. And that's the result of an amendment to an appropriations bill that Henry Hyde put into place back in the 1970s, as I recall, uh, after the Roe v. Wade decision. And it's been in it's been law ever since. So it would be against the law for uh, for Barack Obama or for anybody else to have given Planned Parenthood money for abortion services, uh, Tyrone, regardless of, you know, what uh, Trump and the right-wingers are going to say. So, you know, that's the situation. This over at uh, rawstory.com. White vigilante couple shoots at black men who were simply returning a U-Haul truck. It never ends. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club, Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson, who was a guest on our program a while back. Uh, This is from page 86. One of the great privileges of whiteness is not to see color, not to see race, and not to pay a price for ignoring it, except, of course, when you're called on it. But even then, the price pales quite literally in comparison to the high-priced black folk pay for being black. We pay a price too for not even being able to derive recognition and financial reward for the styles that make the world want to be black so bad that they don't mind looking like us as long as they never ever have to be us. If the appropriators can freely rip off our culture with no consequences, those who revise racial history, the fourth stage of white racial grief, are even less accountable for their deeds. The way of the racial revisionist when it comes to black life and history is simply to rewrite it. Their motto is, it didn't happen that way. There's a flood of writing that tells us that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, but about an effort to defend states' rights. But, my friend, you've got to put yourself in our place and see the absurdity of such a claim. Defend the rights of states to do what? To enslave blacks. But even here, the irresistible logic of whiteness that is irresistible to whites themselves and to all of us who are subjected to white whim springs into full action. White American history is so powerful that even when it loses, it wins, at least in skirmishes within whiteness itself. From the right wing, there is the belief that the Civil War was fought over the ability of individual states to beat back a federal government out to impose its will. From the left wing, there's the belief that the Civil War was a conflict between the planter class and the proletariat. In each case, race as the main reason for the war is skillfully rewritten, or really written out. Slavery is rewritten too. Some white Christian apologists contend that black folk needed slavery to save their souls or to rescue their cultures. A contemporary twist on this argument radiates in thinkers like Dinesh D'Souza, who claims that American blacks brought here through slavery are now doing far better than their African kin. Some white critics argue that since blacks sold other blacks into slavery, bondage was a black man's problem, not a white man's burden. But revisionists would much rather describe the dehumanization of black folk as little more than a commercial transaction. It's another way of washing their hands of racial responsibility. You look at your job and you think that your black co-worker got an unjust nod of approval from the powers that be. You never stop to think how the history of whiteness in America is one long scroll of affirmative action. You never stop to think that Babe Ruth never had to play the greatest players of his generation, just the greatest white players. 
You never stop to think that most of our presidents never rose to the top because they bested the competition. Only just the white competition. White privilege is a self-selecting tool that keeps you from having to compete with the best. The history of white folk gaining access to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale is the history of white folk deciding ahead of the game that you are superior. You argue that slots in school should be reserved for your kin because, after all, they are smarter, more disciplined, better suited, and more deserving than inferior blacks. From Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 